justification and the legal benefit of and the uh, sanctification or the ex, ex, experiential benefit. Yes, very good, good. So uh, we've got two classes of benefits. Some of them are legal. That would include just justification as our prime primary uh, benefit that's in the legal realm, but also things like adoption, uh, things that we receive, but nothing actually happens to us per se. It's a declaration or a placement uh, with, uh, within a realm. Uh, but then we also have the experiential benefit, which is regeneration and sanctification. And uh, it's very important that we uh, recognize that both of these are are part of what uh, we're doing here. Um, there's been a lot of emphasis in evangelical life on justification, and particularly the fact that in justification, Christ does it all, right? And, uh, I mean, that's sort of drilled into us as Protestants, that in justification, Christ does everything. There's nothing we contribute, nothing we could contribute. It's one of the five solas of the uh, Reformation, right? We are solus Christus. Christ is the one who absorbs the totality of the penalty that is ours and gives us the righteousness necessary uh, for us to have a place in his heaven. And uh, it's very important that we recognize that it's all of Christ. I don't contribute in the least, except in terms of a response of faith and gratitude. But uh, when we come to regeneration and sanctification, this is something in which we're integrally involved. Okay, And uh, sometimes this, this gets, uh, gets the short shrift in, uh, in, uh, in evangelical life, because in... Just in sanctification and regeneration, well, in regenerate, God does the regenerating, but once he regenerates, then we become participants in our own experience of faith, okay? And so our sanctification is something that is not done entirely by Christ. Uh, it is something in which we participate. We are, we are, we are growing in Christ's likeness. And, and we do this by, uh, by, uh, by, uh, by exercising the, uh, the, the uh, discovering the means of grace, reading our Bibles, praying, uh, putting to death the deeds of the old, bo- uh, old man, and we, uh, and we, and we, and we bit by bit, uh, extirpate the, uh, the, the sin, uh, that is in our lives. And that's something we participate in, and it's something for which we are rewarded. And so it's a very important that we recognize that both are true. Uh, you know, Roman Catholicism puts everything in the experiential. You've got to do stuff in order to be justified. Okay? And that's wrong. But Protestantism sometimes does the opposite. Okay? Christ does it all, so you don't have to do anything at all. And so what ends up happening is we end up with something of an antinomian uh, outlook on life. It doesn't matter what we do. As long as we got our ticket punched... Uh, we're, we're fine. We don't participate in this at all. And it's very important that we see both of these aspects of salvation in view. Okay. We talked, we reviewed, reviewed a little bit here, five major understandings of the human role in coming to Christ for salvation. I said there was Pelagianism, Arminianism, Calvinism, and then a couple of interior views that are sort of in-betweens. Somebody tell me the difference between a Pelagian and an Arminian. Unmute. Am I? Can you hear me? 
I can hear you, Sarah. Sharon. Okay. Um, the anti-Pelagians are the ones that really think that you can lose your salvation. And the Arminians, there's not very many of them. Okay. There's not as many. You're right. You're right on the fact that there's, there's not as many Arminians. But, but, uh, the primary, the primary thing is not so much that they can lose their salvation, although that plays a role. Um, actually both a Pelagian and an Arminian often will believe that you can lose your salvation. But they also think you can, you have a choice. Okay. Yes. You have a choice. But what's the difference between a Pelagian and an Arminian? Because they both believe that. Pelagians don't believe in original sin. I think they believe man starts the clean slate. Correct. Yeah. So an, a, a Pelagian says there is no necessary act of grace that God needs to provide in order for you to make your move towards him for salvation. That man is not totally depraved. Uh, that man has the ability to call out to God in his native state and that he does not need grace to start the process of salvation. Okay. It's all, so, so a contra-causally free will. You can, you can choose God or you can not choose God. Uh, it's all up to you. The Arminian, as you said here, does believe in original sin and believes that Christ must act first, uh, by extending grace, but it's a, a general form of grace. It, it's, it, which is called prevenient grace. Uh, literally a grace that goes before. And so this is a grace that comes to elect and non-elect alike. Some would say everybody on the planet gets this form of grace from Jesus Christ, which then brings them to the point of neutrality, makes it possible then uh, for them to respond uh, to, to God. So Arminians believe that grace from God must precede any act of faith, but it is not regenerating grace that precedes faith. It is a general prevenient grace that makes it possible to exercise faith, but not necessary. Okay. And then the Calvinist believes that the, that the grace, the, the, the grace that uh, brings us salvation is regenerating grace. Uh, God regenerates us and by regenerating us then uh, compels a response of, of faith and repentance in us. It is a free response uh, nonetheless, it is made necessary uh, by the regenerating work of God. Okay? So, I've sort of given it away here. We talk about two aspects of the divine call. What are they and what's the difference? The, the general and the specific, I guess. Correct. So look, you've identified what, so what, what's the difference between the two? Well, the, the general would be to all mankind. Okay. And then the specific would be to the the, the elect. Right. And right. we mentioned that it's really one call, a, a call that goes out to all persons without discrimination, um, not necessarily everyone without exception, because some people never hear the gospel. But it's a, it's a call, it's a gospel call that goes out every time we share the gospel uh, and every time it's preached. It goes out to everybody who can listen who has, and anybody who has ears. Uh, receives the general call, but uh, the special call is made special by what? What? What's the? What's the? Uh, what's the catalyst that makes the general call special for some? Generation. 
Regeneration. Yes, very good. So, uh, and so when God regenerates us, he causes us then to respond favorably to the call. So much so, uh, that we found a number of texts in our, in our, in our study here where those who are elect are sometimes the called, the ones who have been called. Well, obviously what is meant here is not all those who have heard the gospel, but rather the called are those who have been efficaciously called. Those who have responded to the call are described in scripture and particularly in Paul as the called. Okay. And so the general call can be refused, rejected. In fact, it routinely is until this work of regeneration by God, uh, which causes us then to respond in faith and repentance. Okay. Uh, so we, we taught, we, uh, I think we ended up, uh, on page 23. And I think, uh, we, we ended up here at the top when we talked about the instrument of the efficacious call. And we said regeneration, of course, is that which renders the general call effective. But it's not just something that God just sort of swoops in and grants without a context. The efficacious call, and every time we see it in Scripture, always occurs in conjunction with the preaching of the Word. And that's sort of how we ended last time, by reminding us that even though it is God who saves, God who regenerates, in fact, we're going to get even more specific as as we work our way through the material tonight, uh, God is the one who saves. Nonetheless, this does not absolve us from any responsibility uh, to share the gospel, because we must give the, we must share the word of God, which the spirit is able to use to make people wise into salvation. Okay. So, uh, regeneration, as we saw here in second Thessalonians 2.14, he calls us through the gospel. Um, our word, our gospel came to you in word, but not only in word, but in power in the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit attended the word of God. So that it was not just a gospel call, but an efficacious call. A, a call that actually did its work in those of us who believe. And the reason that God does this is somewhat mysterious, but we recognize, uh, according to the scriptures, that this is, occurs so that God receives the greatest glory. God has called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. And so we're back to the same the same question that we had with election. Why is it that God elects? Election is not an end unto itself. Redemption is not an end unto itself. We are redeemed in order to carry out the broader and larger purposes of God, which exceed merely saving us uh, to include the whole of God's intention uh, for the church, for Israel, for our sanctification, and for the glory of God uh, in his coronation, in his kingship here. And we and so, so we, we sort of danced around this already, but a question here, I think letter D here on page 23 here, the efficacious call in human freedom. If, in fact, God renders us not only able to respond, but also compels us to respond, what happens to human freedom is there is there really a spontaneity of the will or is this something that god just makes us do he compels us uh, to respond in faith against our wills okay 
I say here that God's call is not a constraint or a coercion, but the means by which he secures our voluntary consent. Uh, you say that, that sounds like a little bit of double talk here. Uh, but I think that's, that's something that uh, we see routinely throughout the scriptures, uh, that, that actually God secures our willing consent. Okay. And you see, you see one of the verses here that I use, Psalm 110 verse three, your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power, which is just a, it's a fascinating bit of wording, right? Your people will, they must, they are going to volunteer. Okay. You ever, you ever, you ever have a, have a boss that says, who wants to volunteer? Mark? You want to volunteer, right? <laughs> and it's not really much of a volunteer, volunteering at that point, but this is a genuine volunteering. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. God is at work at you both to not only to respond in faith and, and, and repentance, to work for his good pleasure, but also to will it. They freely do it. Everyone who has heard and learns from the Father voluntarily comes to me. The Lord opened her heart, this is Lydia, to respond to the things spoken to Paul. Now, let's see if we can't tease this out a little bit. Uh, this is not an affirmation that we have absolute freedom, that we can choose either uh, to, to accept God or to reject God. No one actually, and nobody in the world has contra-causal freedom or absolute freedom, even God himself does not have absolute freedom. There are certain things that God cannot do. This is not a denial of the fact that God is omnipotent, but rather an affirmation that omnipotence means that God can do anything that is in keeping with his nature, character, and will. And so we have statements in the scripture that God cannot lie. Uh, so we can use the word cannot with God as the subject, right? Because there are certain things that are contrary to his nature and character. So when, when we act to embrace Jesus Christ, when we submit to him in faith, it is an act of our will. It's a spontaneous act of our will. But what has changed is that God has made us willing. You know, that song, who's on the Lord's side, thou hast made us willing. Thou hast made us free. And, and, and the point here is that, uh, in, in, in the, in the question of, of freedom of the will, uh, freedom of spontaneity simply means that we always choose according to the dominant impulse of our nature. We choose what we want to do and what is broken in a, an unregenerate person, in an unbeliever is not the fact that they can make choices. They can still make choices and they freely make choices. That's what makes them culpable. That's why God can punish them because they freely and delightedly engage in sin. And so they are blameworthy. Okay. What God does is not fix our chooser. It's not broken. What he does is changes our nature so that the dominant impulse of our nature is to submit to God in faith, submit to Christ, embrace him. Okay, and so what the what the efficacious call does is uh is is a is a regenerating or a, an impartation of our new nature. In fact, that's the definition we're going to give in just a few seconds here as to what uh, regeneration is. It's the impartation 
of the new nature. Okay, it's not just a life principle in general, but it's the impartation of the new nature. We become a new creature. We become a new man, as Paul puts it, new woman. You can uh, supply that there. Okay, and so and so we find here that that's what regeneration accomplishes. And once it once it happens, it is irrevocable. Like all of the gifts and callings of God, uh, the calling of God to salvation is irrevocable. And we find this here, I think, particularly in Romans eleven twenty nine. Uh, this is a with specific reference to the uh, to the calling of Israel as His people, uh, but I think with with application to uh, the question of salvation, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. John six four. No one can come to me unless the Father calls him. But if that happens. I will raise him up on the last day. So it, it's, it's something that's fixed. Once, once the call is extended, this efficacious call is extended, it's never retracted. And so it is, it effectively, uh, saves the person who is called. And then we've got that beautiful train of, uh, that, that sometimes called the golden chain of salvation in Romans 8. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. It is a necessary sequence. Once the chain begins, so you know, once when, once the dominoes start to fall, uh, it's not possible that the dominoes get hung up. Uh, the uh, it will be brought forward to its conclusion. Okay. So let's talk here about what this regeneration is. Um, We'll start with some biblical material here, and then we'll come up with our definition, which we've already sort of lit out of the bag. The actual noun, regeneration, actually only appears one time in the New Testament. Titus 3, 5, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds that we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration. So our salvation is accomplished by him regenerating us, It is not because of anything we have done, but because he simply chose to do so. So the the noun, regeneration, only appears once. But there's a bunch of other terms and metaphors that are used throughout the scripture for this idea of of regeneration. 1 Peter 1.3, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So being born again or being born from above perhaps is a better translation than being born again. It avoids that, that confusion that Nicodemus had, right? In, in John chapter one, uh, when he says, what do you mean born again? Uh, it's it prob- probably a better translation of that. And the same word actually applies here. You're born from above. You're born anew. You're born afresh in a new way. You're born spiritually. So John 1.13 says that we are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of a man, but of God. Okay, so God is the one who births us. And this is going to become a very important verse for us as we discuss the ins and outs of regeneration, uh, because we know, we no more participate in the decision to be born than a child uh, participates in the decision uh, for him to be born. He's simply born. He simply receives life from mom and dad, and he really has no say in it at all. 
Uh, same thing is true of regeneration. We don't, we don't participate. It's not a, an act of our will. It's not even an act of, of the will of any man. It's not something that's genetic. We are simply born of God. That's his choice, his decision. First John 5, 2, uh, this idea of being born of God. So born again, born of God. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. So you're a new creation or a new creature. Ezekiel 36.26, I will put a new heart in you and put a new spirit within you. I will remove that heart of stone, that totally depraved thing you once were, and give you a heart of flesh. Something that is pliable and living and vibrant. Matthew says that calls calls such a person one who is pure in heart. Okay, again, it's it's very important to recognize here that even though in justification we are not actually made holy, in regeneration those seeds of holiness are implanted, and we become advancing in right. We start advancing in righteousness and becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. Uh, Deuteronomy 29 says the Lord, uh, sort of negatively here, the Lord has not given you a heart to know or eyes to see or ears to hear. This is a phrase that comes up multiple times in Isaiah, in Matthew. Remember with the, uh, with the, uh, with the parables of the, uh, of the, uh, the, the seven parables, uh, the, that, uh, the, the so-called kingdom parables here in Matthew chapter 13, right after uh, the uh, the incident here in Matthew 12, the unpardonable sin incident, uh, where the uh, where the religious leaders of the day, the religious leaders of the Jews, had come up to Jesus and were confronting him and and uh, and actually, you know, get going after him because of the miracles that he had done, and uh, and which is which is surprising. And uh, he says, how do you think I'm doing these miracles? You must be doing these things in the power of Beelzebub, you know, the, 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 uh, uh, the, the dark lord, right? So the, uh, uh, the, uh, the Satan himself, you know, you're, you must be doing these. These must be de- demonic powers that you have that are causing you to be able to, to perform these miracles. And so Jesus goes on to an explanation, you know, you know, I, you, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, in order for a person to break into a house, he's got to bind the strong man, and then he can work his will. It doesn't make any sense for me to, uh, if I am a representative of Satan, to come in and bind Satan. Okay, I'm, I'm working for him. And so it's obvious that that's not what I'm doing. And then he, he gives this statement here, you know, all kinds of sin can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit cannot. And the implication here is that they had committed this sin, this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And I think specifically in crediting to Satan the works of the Holy Spirit in the Messiah. And he says that this is something that you can't, you can't do. You can't get away with. And then immediately afterward, he starts speaking in parables and people start to leave him in droves. Up till this point, they've all been gathering around. The crowd's been growing and growing and growing. But now the crowd starts to disperse. 
and the, uh, and the, and the, uh, disciples come up to Jesus and say, what are you doing? You know, the people are leaving. Uh, you, you need to change your strategy here. It's not a very good church growth strategy that you're engaging in here. And, and Jesus says, and here, here, here responds with these words. Well, the Lord has not given them hearts to know or eyes to see or ears to hear. So I'm basically the message here. I'm not going to waste my divine energies with people who are obstinate and who are not going to respond. They have not been given the eyes to see, ears to hear. And so I am going to concentrate my message now in those of you who do. Those of you who do hear, those of you who do see, those of you who come to me and say, what do you mean by these parables? And come to me for the explanations. That's who I'm going to reserve my energies for as, uh, as we move forward. It's sort of the catalyst. It's sort of the hinge of the, uh, of the gospels. Up till this point, it's been all sort of uphill. From this point, it's now sort of a long downhill to the cross. Okay. But along the way, he's going to equip his disciples, those who have eyes to see and ears to hear, so that they can be prepared for his death and ultimately his departure here. But it all hinges on the fact that these people to whom he was offering the kingdom are not regenerate. They don't have eyes to see, a heart to know, or ears to hear. Uh, but we also find uh, promises in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, sort of a, a hint of the new covenant that's sort of embedded in the Mosaic covenant. The Lord your God one day will circumcise your heart. This is another synonym here, a, a metaphor of regeneration. He will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your descendants so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and you will live. And this is, this is a promise that is, that is made to the scattered Israelites. He said someday you're, you know, the, already back in, in Deuteronomy 30, when they're just starting to get into the, the promised land, they're just about to go into the promised land. He says, you're going to be scattered, but there's going to be coming a day when I'm going to, wherever you've gone throughout the world, I'm going to bring you back and you're all going to come as though, as though drawn by a magnet to this place. They're not yet converted. But when they get there and the nations surround them and it looks like they're about to be destroyed by the nations, God's suddenly going to appear. The second coming is going to occur. And in a moment, the uh, the people of Israel will look upon him whom they have pierced and they will weep in repentance. And, uh, and, and in a moment, uh, uh, Romans 11.26 says, all Israel will be saved. Uh, to a man, they will be given these circumcised hearts so that they will all as one flesh, you know, in, in Zephaniah 3 9, they will, they will, they will, they will all receive purified lips and serve me from shoulder to shoulder. And suddenly there's going to be an army of Israelites, all regenerate, as, 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 uh, Jeremiah 31 says that, uh, no longer will a man say to his brother, you need to know the Lord because they will all know him from the greatest to the least. And God is going to regenerate them. And here's the, here's the expression that's used. He's going to circumcise their hearts so that they will call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Okay. Uh, last, last, uh, metaphor for regeneration here is again for Lydia. The Lord opened her heart. Okay, so another synonym here for of the the rebirth. 
to respond to the things that Paul was speaking. So having seen seen all these passages, did, did I hear did I hear a question? Sorry. I thought I, I thought I heard a voice. Well, I was thinking of something, Mark. Yeah, go ahead. Since you since you asked. Uh, I I saw I ran across uh in my reading uh Ezekiel chapter twenty and it kind of gives that uh thing, but I I was thinking about, you know, like in the who, what, when, where, what, the when, the when of that national salvation, it's like the the end of the tribulation, beginning of the millennial kingdom, when God draws all the Israelites from all over the world, and then they don't don't all go in. They, uh, you know, the rebels will be killed physically, and then all of the saved will go into the land, right? Right. At the beginning of the millennium. Yes, at the beginning of the millennium, there is a. There is a winnowing, but it seems like basically what happens is that the nations effectively that, that, that are converging on Israel uh, effectively are killing off the, the recalcitrant. And then God will, in a moment, all Israel will be saved, which I understand to be everyone at this point, everyone who goes into the millennium is, is converted. There's not a, not a, not an unbeliever among them. Right. Okay, I just wanted to make sure. Yeah. Okay. So having seen this biblical material on regeneration, I think we're prepared now to give a definition of what it is. What is regeneration? I say here the basic meaning of regeneration is the idea of new life. So re, new, generate, to cause to live. Okay, so... Uh, regenerating is causing someone to live anew, live afresh. Uh, since life, however, always occurs as part of a larger concept, you know, y- your nature, I'm going to prefer, I think, a, a, a more precise definition here, that regeneration is the impartation of a new nature. It's not a vivification of what we already had, but also, but also, all, but actually an impartation of a new way of thinking, a new worldview, a new outlook, uh, a new mind, a new set of, uh, a new mind, a new will, a new set of affections that are inclined towards God. And specifically, it's an instantaneous, unanticipated, and supernatural work of God. Okay, so the impartation of the new nature is uh, our, our definition, our basic definition of what regeneration is. So let's work through that definition piece by piece. First, we say it's instantaneous. Uh, conception and life are not processes, but events. You know, Dr. McCune used to say there's no such thing as a partially pregnant woman, right? It's either you are or you aren't. Uh, that, that baby's there or it's not. It's either alive or it's not. You know, it's a question that we have right in our, in our, our terrible society that, uh, that speaks of, 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 of infants in the mother's womb as not alive. But but even they would say there there must be some sort of a point, a switch at which they become alive. Uh, even even in their depravity, they recognize that there has to be a point at which life begins. So it's utterly foolish to speak of a partially pregnant woman or a partially dead person unless you're in the princess bride. 
because there's a sharp line of demarcation between those who are alive and those who are not alive. So it is with regeneration. People cannot be nurtured gradually into a regenerate state. It is instantaneous. And uh, along with that, we have the unanticipated nature of regeneration. Life can be anticipated only by the one who gives life. Spiritual life cannot be coerced. I can't produce my own life. I can't make my life more likely uh, by, by doing anything. In fact, John uses this the metaphor of the wind. The wind blows wherever it wishes. And you hear the sound of it, but you do not win, know where it comes or where it's going. So it is with those who are born of the Spirit. You know, we, we see the effects of the wind, but we really can't anticipate when the wind's going to come and when it's not. You know, um, And so that's the same way with regeneration. It's unanticipated. It just happens. And that's why we sometimes talk about the surprising work of God. Right? It, it, sometimes it comes when we least expect it. I think God sometimes delights in doing that, right? To, 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 to make us realize that He is the one who regenerates. We do not produce it by our own efforts, either as individuals or as gospel sharers. We cannot produce life in another person. John 1.13. Uh, those who believe in His name have been born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of a man, but of God. Okay, so the source of belief, the source of the response of, of faith and repentance comes as a result of being born, born of, of the Spirit. Leads, leads to some questions here, and, uh, you know, there are, there are those who criticize, uh, the Calvinist understanding here of regeneration because they're concerned that it might inhibit uh, evangelism. And so we have a, a pair of questions here that have to do with some practical implications of this. First question here is, if humans can't render salvation likely to occur, why should we evangelize at all? If God simply, poof, like the wind, comes and regenerates people, and we don't really have any say in whether he does this or doesn't do this, the question might be asked, well, then why do we bother? Why, why do we bother sharing the gospel? If God's just going to come and poof, why should I bother sharing the gospel? He's going to poof uh, without your help or mine. Okay, But as we noted above, while regeneration cannot be produced by human effort, regeneration always takes place in the context of the word communicated. James 1.18, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth. He birthed us by the word of truth. So it's always in the in, in this context of the word of truth. The word of truth has to be has to be has to be disclosed to these individuals in order for regeneration to take place. This is this is and this is the context in which regeneration always takes place. First Peter says the same thing. You have been born again through the living and enduring word of God. Word of God is necessary. And so while Christian witness can't produce life, it can generate the context of the word of God in which the spirit effectively 
uses the word to make unbelievers wise unto salvation. And so the fact that regeneration is all of God, and it is immediately, immediately done without any help or uh, assistance from us, does not free uh, uh, free us from our responsibility to evangelize. But it does do but it does do two things. One, it frees us from the notion that we have to develop some sort of a slick technique to generate more conversions, right? You know, First Corinthians one and two, I think, is deals with that. It's it, it's not as though, uh, and and I think it's always important. You know, for for those some of you perhaps have only been saved for I, I don't know I don't I don't know many some of you I don't know you at all. Perhaps you've only been saved for a matter of months, and you say, well, I I can't share the gospel yet because I don't have that slick presentation that somebody who's been a believer a long time can do. And so sometimes there's this there's this idea that I've I've got to be an expert I've got to be a professional in order to share the gospel, and that's not true. That's not true. All we need to do is open the word of God and share it with the with a person, and the Holy Spirit can take it from there, right? The Holy Spirit can take the word of God implanted, this word of God that's been that's been set in front of them, and can use it to make them wise into salvation. And so, so you you may have some timidity and say, I, "I'm just I'm just not wired that way. I don't I don't do very good at that." And the answer is, you know, it doesn't matter. That's the beauty of regeneration. We don't have to be really good at evangelism in order to be successful at it because God takes it from there. God takes the word implanted and attends it with a, with an act of his will, a regenerating act and brings people into the fold. Okay. And so we can, we can freely evangelize, even though we may not be professionals or experts. And then it also frees us from the weight of false guilt when God doesn't save us, will save people uh, through our efforts. And so we go out and share the gospel and nobody gets saved. And sometimes it happens for weeks and months and sometimes you can go years and the gospel that you give just doesn't seem to be successful. And perhaps you are given to despair and say, you know, I just don't do this right. You know, I'm not cut out for this kind of a thing. So I'm just going to give up. And we recognize that that's, that's not a proper response either because the Holy Spirit moves where and when he will. We can't anticipate it. All we can do is do the work that God has told us to do to present the word of God that the Holy Spirit is able to make them wise in salvation and, and trust that God will. And, uh, and continue to pray and work until those things happen. Another question that sometimes comes up, what about, uh, if, 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 as we say here, regeneration is instantaneous, how do we account for people who seem to be interested or what we might call open to the gospel and ultimately turn away? So they seem interested. They seem to be nurture, being nurtured towards regeneration. They're almost there. Sometimes you know, you'll even give a prayer request, you know, pray for my neighbor, my coworker. They're, they're really close, you might say. And how would, how would you, how do you describe that situation in appropriate theological language, uh, that, that, that makes sense of what we've learned here tonight? Well, when we speak of, when the Bible speaks of death among humans, 
it speaks of separation and never annihilation. So people are dead in their sins. That does not mean they don't exhibit activity, thought, reason even. Even, even, an in, even, even the emotions can get involved. So death is always with respect to something. So the fact that people think and talk about spiritual things does not preclude the fact that they're all, they're, they're still dead with respect to the life of God. An unbeliever can recognize the existence of God, can be acutely aware of his sin, can fall under the conviction of God and realize that judgment awaits him if he doesn't get his, get his life together and yet not exercise any willingness to respond to this knowledge. Such a person is still devoid of life, still lacks all regeneration. He's curious and perhaps even intensely curious, even under the convicting hand of God. Uh, but none of those, none of those terms that we've just used uh, come up to the level of regeneration, which happens in a moment, in an instant. Okay. Again, interrupt me. I I, I, I muted some folks here that uh, there was a little bit of uh, background noise here. Uh, so uh, if you have a question, uh, go ahead and unmute yourself and, and ask it. Uh, and I uh, always welcome those questions. If not, though, we'll keep going with our definition. It's an instantaneous work. It's an unanticipated work. It's a supernatural work. It's a unilateral work of God. It precludes all human synergism. We passively, passively receive birth just as surely as we passively receive physical life. Again, John 1, 12, those, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even those who believe on his name. These were born not of blood, not of the will of man, but of God. It's God's will at, at work. So it's a supernatural act of God. He saved us, not on the basis of anything that we've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, Affected by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And the result then is a new nature. Regeneration produces a new man. Regeneration, if I can say it, produces a believer. Okay? Where once you were an unbeliever, you are now a new creature who is by definition a believer and a repenter. Okay? Context of regeneration is depravity. An unbeliever is incapable of acting contrary to his nature, right? It's, it's no more possible, uh, for, uh, uh, for a, uh, for a person to repent in his natural state or believe in his natural state than it is for an Ethiopian to change the color of his skin, Jeremiah 13 says, or, or, or a, or a leopard to get up one morning and say, you know, I don't like the spots today. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to try stripes doesn't work because that's their nature. It, it, it's built, as it were, into their very DNA. Depravity is built into our DNA. And so what happens is that we receive a new nature uh, in order for our minds, our wills, and emotions to make their proper response to God. And this becomes immediately evident in that the first conscious response of a regenerate heart is the exercise of 
those functions. He has a new mind. God gives us a heart to know me, that I am the Lord, and in a moment we know him. We have an acquaintance, a relationship, a new set of affections here. You will love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and all of your mind. As a result of this regenerating work, you immediately love God and a new will. I will put a new spirit in them and immediately they will walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances. I will give them purified lips that all of them will call upon the name of the Lord. That phrase that's borrowed by Paul in Romans 10, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So, what what is necessary for us to call upon the name of the Lord? God will regenerate us, and immediately we respond in faith. We call upon the name of the Lord. Okay. So some some questions here. Well, what what about some of these passages, say in the Book of John, that talk about if I you know if I believe I'll have everlasting life? John three sixteen. Everybody knows that verse, right? Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It sounds like you've got to believe in order to receive life. Same thing is true in in John 20, uh, verse 31. Uh, These things are written that you may have, uh, uh, that you might believe, and that believing you may have life and have life more abundantly. So there are some passages in the uh, scriptures that seem to suggest that we have to believe in order to be new creatures rather than we've we've said it here, that you need to become a new creature in order to express faith in God. I think we have to recognize that this concept of life in Scripture is a broad one. And the idea of having life is not the same as receiving life for the first time. Okay. In fact, life often has reference to the abundant life, resurrection life, Life that is life indeed, Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.19. And so we recognize that even though we are alive, we are regenerate, that there is still ahead of us something grander than what we have now. We, we have eternal life, but we are not, we are not, we, we are not having the experience of resurrection life, right? Okay. And so we find in scripture this anticipation of a life to come. Now, it's part and parcel with the same life that we have, but there's a grander expression out in front of us. So, for instance, sometimes life follows justification. Sometimes it follows sanctification and a lifetime of perseverance. He who endures to the end will be saved. Okay? Uh, and... Uh, uh, Peter speaks of if if you if you if you uh, if you uh, uh, if you do all these things, there's a whole list of of items. Add to your faith, virtue, and virtue, knowledge, and temperance. If you do all these things, the reward at the end is life. Okay. The point here is not that you get saved after doing all of these things, but rather after you receive life and cultivate that seed of life that is within you and develop it and become like Christ, you graduate into life that is life indeed, right? We, 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 we receive the afterlife, uh, the, the life, the, the resurrection life, uh, which we all anticipate. So, uh, the fact that, uh, you know, and particularly in, in, in 
Titus 3 speaks of the fact that you, you have life, then you believe, and then you have life. Okay, so obviously those two lives not be, cannot be the, the exact same thing. So God regenerates us so that we respond in faith and obedience and sanctification and perseverance. And then we graduate from that into resurrection life, uh, life, uh, in the, in the, in the afterlife. Okay. Another question here comes down to our, our gospel witness. If in fact regeneration comes first, then what should we say, uh, to an unbeliever when we, you know, trying to give the gospel? Uh, you know, we've been inclined to say you need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And, uh, perhaps you're hearing for the first time, well, no, actually God has to do something first. Uh, you'll be saved and then you'll call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, so, so it seems to, you know, reverse some of these statements here. So why is it, what, what should we tell a person to do if in fact, uh, that God is the one who must act first? I say here from a human perspective, the first activity of the awakened mind is to repent and believe. I actually, I'm going to retract a statement I have right here in your notes. I say it's silly to tell a person to be regenerated. And the reason I think I've, I've got to rescind that, I've got to retract that statement from your notes here, is because what Jesus does, right? You know, what, what does he say to Nicodemus? You must be born again. <laughs> okay. So I, 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 I have to, I have to change what I said there. You know, I, I, I retract what I've said here. It's not silly to say you must be born again. You must be regenerated. Okay. Because Christ himself did. At the same time, I think it's appropriate for us to plead with people to do works that are in keeping with a regenerate mind. And so I think it's quite appropriate for, for us to say with the scripture writers, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. So regeneration is a grand, grand, grand doctrine of scripture. I hope it becomes more, more and more precious to you as time goes on. Any, any questions up till this point here in our notes here? Well, when you hear, when you're talking about believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, I have talked to people and do you believe this? Do you believe yeah, they believe all that, mm-hmm. but they're not saved. True. So where do you go from there? Yeah. I, we have to recognize that, that faith is not just the belief in facts. Yeah. Remember the, the devils also believe and tremble, right? So, 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 so they believe the facts correctly. They, they know what's true. Okay. But it's not saving faith because it's not a submission to, to, to those facts. And I think that's, that's, I think that's, that's really the, the issue here. It's, it's not just believing that the facts are true. But embracing them as true and submitting to the truth of them is what faith is all about. So, so I, I think that's, that's really what you have to press for. It's not, it's not just to get them to admit that the Bible is true, but that it has, that it has, you know, has authority over me and I submit to it. And that, and, and I think that's really the essence of what faith is, is a, is a is a trust or a submission to the facts, not just an acknowledgement of the facts, but a submission to the facts. I don't know if that that helps. It it does, but especially if you're dealing with Catholics and some of the practicing Catholics, yeah. 
they they um, they go to confession, um, yeah. which to me is telling them they they are confessing. They want to repent. Yeah. If they want to make restitution or whatever, so they are doing that. Right. Right. But but in that case, they are submitting to what they believe the Bible to say, but they're quite wrong. Right. And that's, and that's, that's the concern with them. So it, it's, it's not, it's not that there isn't a certain willingness here, but they're, but they're submitting to the wrong facts. Okay. There, there's, there's this, this thought uh, that goes through their minds that I have to do these things in order to be justified. I have to do these things in order to be regenerated. And, and, and there's where they're, they're quite wrong. They, they believe that there is something that they can do to earn and to produce those things. And so while they are in some sense submitting to the teaching of their church and their church's incorrect understanding of what the Bible says, it really is, it's, there's nothing meritorious about that, right? Because they're submitting to the wrong facts. Uh, they're, they're submitting to a God that is ultimately other uh, that he has described in the Christian scriptures. Yeah, I, it doesn't. It doesn't bring you any closer to convincing them, right? But but I, I but I think we understand. We can at least understand yeah. the problem that they have. Other thoughts? Other questions? Okay, I was going to. I was planning to get through definitive sanctification tonight, but that's not going to happen. Uh, so we'll go ahead and save that for next time. We're, we're officially a little bit behind now. Uh, so uh, we'll try and catch up a little bit next time. And so we will look forward to seeing you in another week.